I am Doug Friedman. And I am Barbara Friedman. And this is your Mental Breakdown, the Mommy and Me Adventure. (laughs) That's right, podcast. Hi, Mom. Hi, Doug. You're you're not Meredith either. No, I'm not Meredith either. That would be weird. Yeah, (laughs) Meredith is your mommy. Yeah, that's right. That's that's a whole other episode. <laughs> but you are my mom. You are you are a licensed therapist. You were a licensed therapist before I was. Yes, almost before electricity. No, that's not true. But you are 122. Is that right? Going on. Yeah, feels like it. <laughs> <laughs> I am thrilled to have you here. And mom, we talk about the episodes, the sessions all the time. And you have a lot of insights, which I think are phenomenal. Mostly some of them are not so much, but you know, whatever. Some are lame. Some are lame. That's right. And the, the last couple sessions that I've had with Drew, the one that we broke down, but you've heard, and the one that you and I are breaking down had to do with some mommy issues and some parent issues. And I thought it was really interesting to have you on to talk about that. Oh, that's interesting. That should be interesting. (laughs) We're going to hope that it is. Right. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But you've been, like I said, paying attention, really invested in the story and in the Mm -hmm. arc as a therapist, as my mom. And something that, you know, we talk about is you've noticed that he's kind of coming around to his sense of individuality, right? Mm -hmm. And, And being his own person. And I mean, early on, I remember you saying, and like, oh, wow, he really hit a turning point. Like I could really hear something mm-hmm. in him, right? Those were really exciting moments too. How so? I mean, just as a listener, when you pick up, and maybe because of my training, but when I pick up a little something in, in a client's voice or in an attitude, it's just a little bit of a shift. Hmm. It's, it usually shows growth that lasts. Right. And I just get very excited about it. I mean, I get excited for all my clients when they start making progress. Yeah. It's interesting too, because this is your work. This is what you do. And you kind of hearing me do it now. Like it's been very interesting for me because I was thinking about this recently, about the way that you were trained to do therapy and the way I was trained to do therapy and what a difference there is in our styles and approaches. Hmm. And I was thinking, it's really interesting that in my day, we were taught to be a little more aloof and non-disclosing so that the the therapy energy was more one way. The client was saying things to you, but you were not saying too much back. And I always had an issue with that, especially Hmm. from the early and Freudian days when I was thinking that... This is just too much anxiety provoking for the client. Right. So right. you you can't like really just squeeze a person into getting better or changing because you make them so uncomfortable. Yeah. And I didn't realize that you and Freud were hanging out having coffee in Vienna and talking about this stuff. That was yes, those were those were the days. Right. Yeah. Good coffee too, I might say. <laughs> and great pastry. A nice Vienna roast in it. Right. <laughs> It is interesting because that's, for me, I, I never liked that. I never liked how therapists could just be a stalwart and you don't get to see anything. And it was, I think, portrayed in TV and film 
that way. It was almost a caricature of what a therapist was, especially a, an analyst sitting behind you yes. while you're lying down. I remember one of my favorite stories was an article from the New York Times that I read about a, an analyst, a Freudian analyst in Switzerland, who was very reticent to ever speak to his patients. And he, he would just sit behind them usually and have them talk. Hmm. And it was during the winter, and he had patients in for four or five days. They realized that he had frozen to death on his patio. He was <laughs> sitting there, and nobody <laughs> no, noticed the no. difference. I have the article. It was, really? it was from the New York Times. I said, it's a yellow newspaper now, but it was absolutely true. Wow. Yeah. And so I've always had that sort of caricature feeling about people who are so withholding therapists who don't tell you anything right or that who don't humanize themselves enough yeah but then i really learned a lot from you guys you and your colleagues who are very forthcoming right yeah and i i remember growing up when you became a therapist because that was in in my lifetime you weren't always a therapist i remember when you were doing that when you're becoming that that you were often very guarded and protective of, of you and your personal story. And part of that was training, but I think part of that might've been your clientele at the time. Could have been. And there's just a natural reticence. I think, I think I was basically a little shy about talking about myself personally, because I, I really got the impression that it wasn't acceptable. Yeah. I think there's, and there's a line, cause I know there's a lot of therapists that do that and it feels self-serving and it sounds self-serving and it's not to benefit the client. If it's to build the rapport, great. If it's to highlight something for the client, that's fantastic. And that's what I try to do. But I think, you know, like you said, Ma, that that's not the school that you came up in. That's not, it, it's foreign to you, but I think it's actually more instinctual for you to be like that. It really is. I mean, I used a sense of humor all the way through my practice, even when I was in the, the formality of it all. We would just bust out laughing sometimes, so. And I, I think that does humanize things. And even, I mean, I think in the session that we'll hear in a second, Drew and I are talking, and I crack a couple of jokes, like in the midst of talking about something serious. Mm -hmm. And it's, for one, it's more personable and more human. Mm -hmm. For another, it, it lifts that discomfort that you were just talking about. True. And I get that there's a school of thought that says you want to stay in the discomfort because something will come out of that. I don't think that's essential. And that's not how I practice. When I worked with teens early on in my career, mm -hmm. we would do that. And you would sit there in silence with the teen until the teen spoke and said something. And I always thought that that was like a challenge that the teen is always going to win. You're never going to win that one. Right. I mean, it's, a, it's just a standoff. You kind of like fold your arms over your chest and say, who's going to talk first? Right. I mean, I've sat in silence with so many clients as an exercise, and it just doesn't seem to do that much good. It actually, I think, damages the rapport. I guess if you kind of acknowledge that, oh, we're both kind of folding our arms and we're playing this game. Okay, I'll play this game with you for a little while. I've done that, sure. But it's, it's uncomfortable. And for me to be uncomfortable as a therapist, that's not how I want to work. I don't blame you. I agree entirely. And I think it feels to me like a waste of time sometimes that... Hmm. If you're trying a ploy or if you're just trying to do something contrived, that just doesn't seem right. I think the authenticity on the therapist's part does a lot more good than anything else. 
Yeah. And I think there's something about, I can only speak to my nature. That's not true. I can speak to a lot of other people's nature (laughs) and maybe nurture now that I have my mom on the show with me. There you go. In my nature and nurture is just that sort of improvisational, creative way of thinking. Like growing up in our house, we were always very witty, very clever, very quick almost to a fault because we would do it all the time. Right. But there's something about using that. I don't know that that muscle that I've developed with clients. So I'm coming up with exercises for them to try and do. I'm coming up with jokes that I'm not necessarily saying, but I'm also coming up with clinically that same kind of level of creativity, where to go and how to get them there. And I wonder, go ahead. I was just going to say, I noticed that about you, that no matter how much you joke around or seem informal with your clients, you never lose sight of the clinical needs that that the session requires. And you have a perfectly wonderful balance, in my opinion, of the clinical information and the light touch. Hmm. Wait a second. Are you saying you're proud of me, Mom? Well, <laughs> you want to go that far? <laughs> nah, nah, we'll save that for another time. No, let's don't. Let's take a moment and say that I am extraordinarily proud of you. I oh. really am. Because you you developed your own style of working and you you do the work at a level of integrity that I really admire. Oh. Yeah. And so, yeah. And you're cute, you know. Oh. Well, I will say two things very apropos to that. One, because it comes straight from a recent Drew episode. Thank you. Period. Uh huh. Good. And another is, wow, mom, that makes me extremely uncomfortable. I think we need to stop talking about that. And <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I appreciate that. It, it really does tickle me that you listen to the podcast that you, often have something to say. Well, you definitely have something to say. <laughs> Each episode, you know, we, we talk about these and it's, it's really interesting. And there's, there's a way of just listening to people, listening to growth. I don't know. We like that. Being stagnant just doesn't compel me. It's true. But I think also that you learn a lot from hearing how someone else does therapy. Mm. And I, I learn a lot from listening to how you guys do it. Oh, and yeah. the breakdowns and the and the intros are very very interesting to me. Nice. Yeah. Maybe on that note, speaking of breakdowns and intros. Oh, <laughs> are we segueing? There it is. Let's segue to the episode or the session. And I will say, you listened to the one right before this also, and they're they're fairly similar, just in the sense of what Drew was going through. And just to give people a little background. Drew had a heart event, which turned out to be a heart attack. And he went to the hospital, to the ER. And when he was there, he actually thought he was having an anxiety attack. They gave him Ativan to bring the anxiety down and realized, oh, he actually did have a heart attack. So he was processing that. He was dealing with the anxiety of that. We got to process his anxiety in real time in a session, which was kind of cool because he, he called me that morning, went to the ER. Then we had a session that afternoon. So we got to deal with a lot of the anxiety in real time for him, which was great. And what I think you heard just before this session was him kind of being a little reticent about taking the Ativan and about 
wanting support from his mom and not getting it and realizing that what kind of support he really needs in situations like this. And if he was getting it from his girlfriend who he's on a break from, but kind of she gave him support as though she was a girlfriend. So all of that's kind of coming up. And then we kind of hit this where he's he's really dealing with a lot of that, but realized for him, oh, wait, I had a heart attack. I'm stressing too much. I need to not stress. And we kind of tagged the last session with him by saying something that he talks about, giving this all up and going fishing in Canada. And I kind of went, okay, well, what would metaphorically fishing look like? Can you think about that this week? Like, what would my life look like if I was just fishing in Canada? So that's where we left off last week. And we start off kind of with that idea and we, we go from there. So you guys will listen to it. And I guess you'll stick around, right, Ma? I will. I'm very excited about this. You know, if you want, we can listen to the session itself and you can chime in and critique me as we go in real time. Whatever you want to do. <laughs> no, not a chance. I don't think so. I'm kidding. I don't want to relive my teenage years. <laughs> <laughs> not fair. Oh, no. Payback's a bitch. All right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Y'all listen to the session. We will be back in just a bit. That's all for now. <laughs> Sorry. I know. Hey. You just never like... have to apologize for your dog. <laughs> he just wants so much attention. It's the best. I like the rainy days here. Yeah. Nice. Speaking of water, yeah. how's uh, how's fishing been? Uh, it's funny. I was talking to my auntie about it the other day, and it was a really weird week for me. The uh, the medicine that they had given me. Yeah, the Ativan? Yeah, lorazepam. Lorazepam. Ad- yeah, that's the generic name for it. It really fucked me up. Like, really fucked me up. And I don't know if it was just me. This was just me mentally, like, out of it. There was multiple times where I was mad emotional. Like to the point where I was kind of relating it to, I almost felt like I was starting over therapy wise, mentally, where I was like just completely out of control of like my emotions. But it really kind of freaked me out. Half of me enjoyed it. The calmingness effect that it had sure. on me was beautiful, you know? And I really felt like that was one of the few times in my life where I really felt like I was like slowed down and could think. And, and even though I couldn't think, I felt like I could. And so that I really enjoyed, but everything else was super shitty. And so then it kind of put me in a funk in the sense of like wanting to be on something to feel that. And I was like, like, now I feel like my mom, you know what I mean? And and so I'm trying to navigate how I feel about all of it Mm. in the middle of my mind still racing and not being able to quite slow down and I'm not sleeping very well right now. I'm smoking a lot of weed. You know, I'm getting back into that, like that again. Mm-hmm. And I can feel it. Definitely feel it. Were you smoking weed while you were taking the lorazepam? No, I, I smoked it no. like, okay. like maybe a bowl. I really tried to wait until I really needed it, needed it. I mean, I can tell you a couple of things and I can tell you a little bit of, of what I hear. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll have to put a pin in the fishing idea. Yeah, because as we were talking about it before, it was how do you give yourself that sensation of I could just go to Canada and go fish and and give yourself that. But the winding up in the ER and and 
getting lorazepam, like that, that will shift things quite a bit. One thing I heard when I was taking the lorazepam and I had that sensation of not anxious, just that sensation, I didn't need weed as much. I didn't go to it as much. So that shows me that it's not just weed. We were talking a while ago about, I wish I had some other tools that would help mm -hmm. me, not just weed. Right. Just give me one other tool. Like, <laughs> all right, maybe I'll give you like three or four. Right. One tool in a sense is lorazepam. Mm -hmm. It's not one you will probably go to very often, if at all. Right. But just knowing there's, there's an alternative and there's something else there, right? Mm -hmm. I can tell you about lorazepam itself. Some of the adverse side effects can be that sort of amnesia feeling, can be fatigue, can be confusion. Mm -hmm. It does settle things, but it also has an unsettling effect in that way. It just kind of like right. scrubs your, your brain and your memory in, in, in a way, mm -hmm. right? So that might have been some of what you were experiencing. And it, it is a little cloudy and coming out of it can be tough. I don't think you were taking it for very long, so it's okay. Yeah. I think you're already guarding against it becoming habitual. Like you, you mm -hmm. want to make sure you don't rely on it or need it or even want it that much. Right. Although you can say like wanting it is okay. It's not bad mm -hmm. because it means I want this sensation. It's the same thing. It has you wanting weed. Right. I want to be a little calmer. I want things to slow down a bit. Okay. Let's not forget you also kind of reached a critical mass point where you didn't know what was going on. You had a heart attack. You had a heart events, something happened and right. you were in the ER and you didn't know what was going on. Oftentimes, especially when people present with anxiety, it's given as needed mm. because it can act pretty fast. Right. You know, like it takes effect pretty quickly. I don't know if you noticed that part of it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It can just be an as needed thing. I think I told you a guy that I worked with a while back, the rock star guy who had an Ativan mm -hmm. in his pocket when he went on stage. Yep. It's that just in case thing. That was in the back of my head while I had it. I tried that, but my mental want, I guess, that's all I could think about was when it was in my pocket. I was like, well, at least I have it in my pocket. I have it in my pocket. I have it in my pocket. It's right there. It's in my pocket. And it was almost to the point where I, I just needed to take it to get off my mind. Mm. And I was like, this, like, this isn't what I want this for, even though I was still taking it under the conditions of like, my anxiety's crazy. I'm freaking the fuck out right now. I know I'm taking it for the right reasons. And there's still that want for more that I really didn't like. Yeah. Yeah, I hear that. Because I, I loved the, the calming. Like, I, I loved it. You're recognizing it did help. I loved the calming. I'd rather be calm than anxious. Mm -hmm. I didn't like that I was almost obsessive in my thinking of it. Because that that is almost more anxiety producing than it is anxiety relieving. Right. I think if we recognize it as, okay, there was one other tool that I have. If you metaphorically have a joint in, in your right front pocket, an Ativan in your left front pocket, mm -hmm. well, let's see if we can put something in your, in your right back pocket and your left back pocket. Right. And maybe even your pocket protector where you keep all your pens. <laughs> and, you know. um, <laughs> let's give you a few more tools and and build that because then it's not just, okay, when do I take this? When do I take this? If you were a meditator and you go, okay, I've got an app for it. I can meditate 
anytime. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know that you'd necessarily be walking around all day going, when can I meditate? When am I going to meditate? Should I meditate <laughs> now? When am I meditating? Right? Right. And meditating can instantaneously bring anxiety down mm-hmm. faster than an Advan, actually. Right. You believe that crap or am I just full of shit? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's where I want to be. I don't think I under, quite understand what that means and quite understand how powerful my brain really is. Yeah, I mean, I could be on something and there's a million things I could be on. But I think through the work that we've put in over the last couple of years is like showing me that I don't necessarily need it. I, I think I'm a lot stronger in my own self and taking that route. And that's really where I want to go with it. I'm mm-hmm. just It's just scary because of I literally felt like I took two years back in all of this emotionally and kind of where I'm at. And I think that's why I'm so in a rut right now because Mm. I almost feel disappointed in myself. Tell me about that. I think overall what I heard through all of this was that I was too stressed out and that I needed to stop and smell the roses. And I think that's something that we've been saying this whole time. And Mm. to kind of hear it in a hospital setting like that almost made me feel like I haven't been doing my part and putting the work in and doing what I need to be doing to the full effect of what I need to be doing. Because if I'm having events like this because of stress, then I'm not doing my part. Yeah, I understand that. So I'll be down on myself because I'm not doing enough. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing enough to get myself in a place of doing less. (laughs) Right? Mm -hmm. See the irony there? Yeah. I, I hear the part where you go like, oh yeah, the past two years we've been talking about this, we've been talking about this, and then this happens to me, okay? And there is a, a reality of that, which could be, and we don't know it, but it, the reality could be, yeah, this has been building for two years or longer, and man, I didn't do enough to avoid this. That could be true. Mm-hmm. Might be true that it's COVID-related. Mm-hmm. could be true that it's one isolated event. Right. I mean, you didn't have a series of heart attacks. Right. You don't have a bad heart. When they checked you out more recently, they were like, yeah, you're fine. Well, yeah. I mean, that is the best case scenario. I almost feel like I made it up. I almost feel like I'm lying about it. And I don't, I don't quite understand where that feeling comes from. Well, let's think about that. I'm almost lying about it. That means what? I don't know. I think I was looking for reassurance too in all of this from my parents in a big way. Hmm. That I didn't really get the way I wanted it. They showed up for me for sure financially again, as they always do. Right. And kind of since then, they haven't haven't really texted me or called me or anything like that. And the other day I called my mom and she was all fucked up. And I was going to call her and kind of tell her what was going on and where I was at and I'm not doing very good and like all this stuff. Right. And she was pissed drunk. Like she couldn't even like, Mm. couldn't even talk. And I don't, we haven't talked since then. I feel like I'm really doing this alone with the community around me. You know, I like friend been checking in on me, Mm. you know, girlfriend been checking in on me. All these people have still been checking in on me and there for me in a big way. Right. It's not my parents. And and I think that that's one of the things I just haven't dealt with that stressed me out in a major way. What would dealing with it mean? Dealing with it with myself. You know, I don't I don't think it's like a conversation I need to have with them or something that needs to be resolved mm. with me and them. I think there's something in me that needs to be resolved. And I'm not 
I'm not quite sure where that starts. Right. And I think in the middle of it, I love starting in the middle. So I'll start there. I think I genuinely just want them to be a part of my life. And it's really frustrating that, that I feel like our only conversations are what I have to offer. What do they have to offer me? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think this event is really showing me what that real life looks like. Because I also experienced a lot of guilt in this. My mom was like, oh, I'll fly down this weekend. I'll be there. Like, we'll be fine. Like, I got right. you. And I was like, no, like, that's not what I need right now. And then when I called her to tell her what I needed, she was fucked up. And so I couldn't tell her what I needed. I feel like I turned it all back around on myself and what I did wrong in this situation versus uh, kind of dealing with that, what I need to deal with with myself. What did, what did you do right in this situation? Or are you just looking at what you did wrong? I think systematically relying on my community, calling you and making a game plan and kind of sorting it out, not, not getting so in my head to where I couldn't do what I needed to do to get through this. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I could, I want to do more with my parents and, and I just don't quite understand. Cause I call my grandma and I, and I know I'm kind of spewing right now and going all over, but no, I'm trying to fine. figure out why I'm that's sorry. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. We're starting in the middle. This is what it's about. Right. Cause I called grandma and kind of talked to her about it and and she's checked in on me a couple of times just nonchalantly hey how's your day going you know and it's my grandma in the middle of nowhere canada is taking time out of her day to check on on me and i and i think i look into this kind of stuff a lot Mm. good and bad both sides life talks you know i think those are the things that are most important to me and that's it that's it life talks i i think that's the most important thing and i think the thing i'm lacking right now is the polaroid I'm in with my parents. I think they're kind of looking at a snapshot of me four or five, six years ago and see little bits of me now and still don't really know who I am. And I think that sucks. What's the snapshot Polaroid of them right now? What does that one look like to you? I don't, I don't think it's anything good. Okay. I think my, my snapshot of them right now is a lot of drinking and my dad's working on a lot. My, my mom kind of on her own which is scary in its own right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that might be what that Polaroid of them right now looks like. Mm-hmm. You have control over that? Not at all. Do you like that? No, not at all. Okay. Is it disappointing that they're like that? Yeah. Okay. One thing we've learned, 10% of that's fine. 90% of that is not, you know, <laughs> like we want 10% disappointment, not 90% disappointment. So looking at, okay, this is the snapshot of them now. I called mom to tell her what I wanted right now, mm-hmm. what I, what would be helpful. And she was wasted. Yep. That's disappointing. And dad's working, maybe a little busy. So he's not really checking in. That's disappointing. I think there's something about what you did good in this situation. It was effective from your point coming from you. It might not have had an effective result. Mm-hmm. I was able to recognize what I needed and wanted. And I called my parents and asked for it. Yeah. I didn't get it because of the Polaroid snapshot that they are now. That's disappointing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And part of it's going to feel bad because it's disappointment. Disappointment doesn't feel good. Right. Part of it will grow 
and we'll hit something else that's in there. Like, yeah, I don't know why I'm feeling this. I don't know why it's such a big deal. Well, because historically it has been. You're not just holding the one time mom was wasted or the one time dad wasn't around or the one time they disappointed you. Yeah. It's what it feels like to be disappointed by parents. I did have a lot of people there for me and I, I can't count them out when I say this next thing. Cause they, I really did have a really good group that was there and supported me and, and gave me what I needed in all of this. And I just can't help but feel the 90% disappointment. And I feel like I'm stepping in my parents' footsteps at the same time on all of this. And this was the first time I really saw what it was like to, uh, it's hard to even say because I, I had community, but I, what I'm trying to say is like I really felt like what it was to be there for somebody and then when I needed them to not be there for me with my parents mm. specifically. And it was a weird feeling in the sense of like I kind of in a roundabout sort of way kind of looked at death, right, and for the first time in my life and, and what that mm. was really like. And we've talked about that. And, and I think mm-hmm. my mantra along what death was was, yeah, I mean, everybody dies and we get there and that's that. And now that it's kind of like more real to me, it put it more in perspective of of who I have around me and why I have them around me. Right. And while I want so bad my parents to thrive in my life the way I want them to, it's a very lonely feeling to not have it reciprocated. Mm. And I think that's really scary to me because of my day-to-day life. I mean, I work a lot. I do. And so now I'm looking at it from a my parents and me following their footsteps and kind of having a little bit of my mom and my dad in me in relationships and just everything, you know, it kind of hit me all at once. Mm. I think that's why I bring up the Lorazepam and all of that. Cause I numbed myself for like a week. Right. And then as of right. like Sunday, I kind of woke up and was like, what the <laughs> fuck? Holy shit. Right. We'll process this. We will, but I want to dive a little deeper into this because what you're describing and you know, what you're feeling in terms of, what I need or what I want or what I can rely on, what's there, what isn't, even thinking about death. It feels lonely. I get that. And I'll just say this phrase to you and let's see how it lands and what comes up. But it really is. I am alone. Mm-hmm. I am alone in this world. Mm-hmm. It's fucking scary. Mm-hmm. For some, others might love it. How's that land for you? Yeah, and, and as you say, that last, some people love it and some people might not find myself kind of in the middle of that. Hmm. Half of me loves being alone, living by myself, having my own space, doing what I want to do when I want to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's true freedom. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lone ranger in that, in the sense of there's no discipline in that. For mm-hmm. me, th- there's no discipline in that. I find myself being my best when I have something, I want to say somebody, something that allows myself to, for whatever reason, tap into that discipline mind state of like, oh, I can't do this or I need to do this this way. Right. Where when I'm kind of by myself and doing my thing, there is no, like there is discipline, you know, there is, and I'm just in a different way. Right. And I think discipline for me is a really good thing. I just don't think I've done it for self yet. That's going to lead us to something larger and lead us back to something. Talking about, yeah, I don't think I've had discipline for myself yet because I numb. When something doesn't feel good, Mm -hmm. whether it's uncomfortable, unpleasant, new, different, 
whatever it is, I'll, you know, throw some weed on it. I'll take the lorazepam I was prescribed. Mm-hmm. I'll throw myself into work. I'll feel like crap, pull the covers over my head and stay in bed. And you also talk to your therapist about this. You talk to some of your friends about this. Mm-hmm. And you are alone. I'm not just running back to my parents. I'm not just running into the arms of my girlfriend. I don't have any of that right now. I am alone. You are essentially in this world alone. Right. Makes me feel really small. Makes you feel really small. And I think little Drew comes out to his best when when we're talking about this kind of stuff. Why? What's what's little Drew feeling? Mm, I feel safer in my own under my covers in my bed, smoking weed. That's safety for me. And it's not even the unknown that scares me of being alone. I think it's the known of being alone mm. that scares me, or or mm. what I have known to be true. Right. That's the scariest part because I I do have some mile markers that I know to be true and and yeah I, I think little true much rather go fishing. <laughs> yeah, doesn't want to play like this, so let me step over there. Yeah, yeah, that's little Drew. One of the things that you're going through is you are actively becoming and embodying big Drew. Yeah. I can't just run back to my parents and have them take care of everything. I don't just want to take this pill prescribed to me. I will talk to my friends and get their support, but I will not make my girlfriend my world. Right. I'll even go without a girlfriend for a while. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this is part of you kind of coming to who and how you want to be, which I see a little smile trying to creep up on your mm-hmm. face. It's not quite sure. there yet. For sure. Yeah, tell me about that. And I kind of thought about myself and where I'm at. And I think that I agree I am coming into who I who I know myself to be and understanding what that means. Hmm. And I see a lot of growing pains in all of this. I don't think it's taking steps backwards. I've said it a couple of times now and, and feeling like I took two two years back. Like I know it's not true. I'm breaking through a new ceiling and I know that um, I have a lot more foundation than I give myself credit for. And I think I need to be more honest with myself in that. The lying to myself goes hand in hand with that too. And knowing where I'm at and being honest with myself. And I do, I got this. I know I got this. And I'm almost lying to myself in the, in the Vader voice of, ah, you might not, you might not have this. Right. And part of that is, yeah, you might not. Okay. Right. Yeah. And that, cool. That's that's kind of being green beret about it. Like, okay, I might not. And if, if not, Cool. I'm capable. If so, cool. It's done. Right. Finding yourself in all this, that's what we're looking for. And that's what you're actively doing. And sometimes it feels uncomfortable. Sometimes it's okay. Maybe some rare times it actually is comfortable. It could be exciting to kind Mm -hmm. of figure this out and try to do this and do without my parents and do that and, and try this. And okay. I think there's... Two things here. One is giving yourself leeway, like room to make a mistake or to have it go well, either way, but giving yourself some room. Otherwise, you're going to be too hard on yourself. And that's the second thing. We've been talking about this for two years, stop and smell the roses mentality. And how can I slow down? How can I do this? And I'm not doing enough to slow down. 
right? And now yeah. you're laughing because you hear the irony <laughs> flat out when I say it, right? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of just hearing that that way? It's just funny to do more to do less. It's like, you know, it's it's just comedy. And I think that's kind of where I'm at. Just like, uh-huh. it's just kind of, yeah, it's where I'm at. I mean, you hear it in so many different cliches. I've got to get out of my own way. The only person holding mm-hmm. me back is me. All this right. stuff. And it's it's true. And we get in our heads a lot. That's why it was easier just to take the lorazepam than keep it in my pocket and think about mm-hmm. it all day. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, that you couldn't have hit any more uh, nail with the hammer on that one. There's so much unknown of what's going on this week. Mm. And... I'm like, okay, it's going to, it's going to be okay. Like, I I know this week will be okay and um, everything will work itself out and I'm going to do my part to do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm still scared. Like it's still scary and fucking wild and kind of reckless and a little bit all over the place. And right. It's okay. To me, that's life. Right. That's the peaks and valleys of it. Absolutely. That's what makes it not just one flat-lined road, because right. that's flat-lining. Yeah. You don't want that. Yeah, and, and I think my uh, my peaks and valleys over the last month or two have mm. increased a lot. Mm. And I didn't think I was prepared for it, and I think I doubted myself in a lot of that. And now I feel like I'm much better in my peaks and valleys as far as what they look like to me. Mm-hmm. And I feel very comfortable in them. This was just kind of like a curveball. The last two weeks have been a huge curveball. Yeah. Or you can hit a 90 mile an hour fastball. <laughs> I mean, not right now, but you could work up to it. Hey, I might. I might. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might foul one back. You're not going to line hey, drive straight it. straight back and be timed right. <laughs> Good point. Um, hitting a curveball, though. Sure, you might. you might do it. Not a problem. But when was the last time you stepped in front of a... God, pitcher? I'm just giving you shit. It's been Dirk. 10 years. <laughs> right, right, right. But that's Because I, I would put money on you could hit 90-mile-an-hour fastball before you could hit a curve right now. For sure. Because it will take your timing a second to catch up. But for your brain to remember what the curve is like and where it's moving and where it's going, and where like that requires a lot more. Right. So you're getting a lot of curveballs right now. Yeah. And you're doing it alone, mm-hmm. on your own. Yeah, that's new. Yeah. It's exciting. And yeah, you're going to swing and miss a few mm-hmm. times. You can foul them off a few times. And you're going to hit a line drive and look around for a high five, and your parents will not be there. Right. So what we need to do is find your team, find your people. Yeah. So you can line drive it and look at the dugout when you wind up on second base mm-hmm. with the standing double. Right. Mm-hmm. And see everybody in the dugout. So you can get the high fives when you come back in. Yeah. Because essentially when it's, when it's you at the plate, it's you, it's just you. Right. And just to throw fuel on that fire real quick, my parents were the parents that brought bottles of Tito's to the games when I was 13. And so like I was that kid that hit doubles and my parents weren't there. Yeah. It's wonderful to have it. It's brutal when you don't. Mm-hmm. Right now, you're still stepping up to the plate going, yeah, my parents aren't watching. And I don't have my person in the stands. Right. Yeah, here I go. Yeah. And finding it just for yourself is tough. You can. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think the other thing fucking me up right now hmm. is consistency of my life and whether it's true or not in real life, it isn't mine. I've heard the in different ways, but quote unquote the same sentence multiple times. And it's you put work in front of your family. And through everything we've talked about, and I hope you know me as a person to this point, to know that like I do really enjoy working. But nothing's mm-hmm. more important to me than my relationships and the people in my life. Right. And so I struggle, and I think I'm bringing this up now because of parents too. I think I'm struggling to be heard in who I am. And I mm-hmm. think that comes from me not knowing quite what I'm saying yet. Oh, wow. Well said. That was well said. <laughs> really? I mean, that was, yeah. I'm listening to it and I'm going, well, ah, there, he hit it. Yeah. Because I, I still don't quite know who i am mm-hmm. and i know i want to be heard i just don't know where i fit in yet well guess what that's exactly where you're supposed to be right now and this is what this period of time is for you figuring out who i want to be two questions you have to ask yourself where am i going and who's going with me yeah. but before that you have to answer who am i who mm-hmm. am i where am i going who's going with me for a long time in your life who's going with me came first where am I going was like, okay, second, who am I? Wasn't there. Yeah, at all. It was defined by how others see me, how necessary I am to other people. Mm -hmm. So now we're really digging in and answering, asking and answering that first fundamental question. Who am I? Yeah. I loved how you said it. Like I'm not being heard and I don't know what it is I'm saying yet. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You did something so cool half an hour ago. You said, yeah, I know I'm spewing. I'm just going to start in the middle because that's, that's how I do it. Yeah. Yeah. Rewind two years ago. You're like, I don't know where to start. Where do I start? I don't know the beginning. No, now you're just like, hang on. I'm just going to throw this shit out. I'm going to start right in the middle and, and just throw it all out there because that's how I do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's you. You, yeah. you kind of figured that out and found that out. Yeah. This is where you are. You're in the process mm-hmm. of figuring out who you are and how you are. And when you said, I hope you know me well enough by now that <laughs> work doesn't come before family. Like, no, I, I know. Yeah. What comes first is very new for you. Mm-hmm. You know what comes first? I should come first. I don't know if I do, <laughs> I don't know if I do yet. Exactly. And that's exactly where you are. I know I should come first. One of the few times I'll let the should go because yeah. it's true. I should come first. I don't know that I actually do right now. Right. Because I haven't for so long. I don't know what that's like. Yeah. Okay. So can I experience that? Can I see what that's like? Can I see what it is to have something to say? And you do. So I want to share that I have something to say. Mm -hmm. I would like somebody to listen and to witness it. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're getting there. Yeah. And the other thing I want to, I kind of want to just put a pin in too is mm-hmm. me understanding i'll use this word me understanding what it's like to be selfish because mm-hmm. when, when i hear that word it's a lot of bad all right. you're being selfish you're thinking of yourself you're doing this you're doing that and right. i think i've kind of written that word off and now i i kind of want to throw it back in my life of being selfish in a good way yeah i don't think i know what it's like to be selfish in my way yet I think I know how to be selfish in a dick way, you know, being an asshole, being like, no, fuck everybody. I'm going to do what I want to do. I can do that. No problem. But I think navigating now and how I want to be morally and and everything kind of combined, 
is super new for me. And yeah, I just want to put a pin in that to kind of check in, in the next couple of weeks of what that looks like. I love where you're at right now. I know it doesn't feel comfortable, but I see it in a different way. I think you yeah. also see it in this way. Like, oh, I'm at a place where I can actually figure out who and how I am. Yeah, it's scary that I don't have parents to fall back on. Yeah, it's a little uncomfortable that I'm not just avoiding with weed or lorazepam. Yeah, I'm actually doing this, but I've got a therapist. I've got a best friend. I've got some people around me. Right. So I know I'm not alone, but I am on my own. Mm -hmm. As I said, I love where you're at. Yeah. And you've got more tools now than pretty much you ever have. Ever. Like, ever. I think that's so gangster. You know, I, I feel like a, like a truth thug in that sense and mm. being prepared and what I need to do for what this life is. So like I'm learning a lot of lessons right now in the last six, eight weeks that I really could have learned when I was 18. Sure. And so it's just one of those things where I'm looking at it and understanding where I want to be in my future and, and what that looks like. And figuring this out now is a lot harder than it would have been if I was 18. And, that, you know, I just kind of had that realization now. Cause I don't feel like a full adult, if that makes sense. Okay, now this is what I should have been doing when I was a kid. Well, right. Okay. And I'm doing it now. So we're, we're, we're finding where you are and the idea of safety net. You're where you are. And, and the thought of like slowing down and going fishing right now, metaphorically speaking, like, okay, I'm not quite there yet. Right. I might not need to work so hard, but what I really want to do is find a way to really be myself, find what it is I want to say, and then see where I'm heard and surround myself with the people that actually listen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're getting there. Yeah. And we are back. So we start off with him. I mean, we kind of started in the very beginning, just checking in on that idea of fishing, which was from the last session, that idea of how do you stress less? He would say, I want to, I could just give this all up and go fishing in Canada. And I would say, well, can you look at metaphorically what fishing in Canada would look like? So I check in with that and he's just like, nope, I've got this medicine on my brain. I can't, I, it's been a weird week. Mm -hmm. So he kind of just goes into that and just kind of feeling like a little out of sorts about that. Mm -hmm. He also mentioned that smoking lots of weed to calm down was what he was doing after he got out of the hospital and that he needed to get it off of his mind. Yeah, it was interesting because it's something that he's talked about that I don't, I don't really harp on is his, is his weed smoking. Like, okay, so he uses weed. He said things like, I don't like using it to go to sleep or to calm down, but that's, that's why I use it. And in, in this, what he was saying was, yeah, the, the lorazepam, which is the generic name for Ativan, I like that it gave me that calming feeling. Like, that was great. Right. Then I got scared that I liked that calming feeling, that I could just take a literally chill pill and I would be calm. And it scared me because that's what my mom does. Yeah. And I don't want to numb out. And it, it's something that I kind of went, well, were you smoking weed while you were taking the lorazepam? He said, no, no. And it's, 
equating like taking lorazepam with, with smoking a bowl. So he understood like, oh, right, it, it does the same thing. It's about calming me down. He was saying something about wanting to be on something like his mom when I was on lorazepam and feeling not anxious, but I wanted more. Right, right. And, and I think that that was giving him a sense of what it's like for his mom who, yeah. who can't stop once she gets started. Yep. I've been listening to him refer to this now since the very first episode when you started working with him. Right. And I'm beginning to think that it's important to ask him how little Drew feels about this because right. because he's he's starting to bring little Drew into the sessions a little bit more now. Yep. And he references himself that way. Yeah. So when he was saying I was on lorazepam and feeling not anxious, but I wanted more. When he wants things to be calmer, what else does he do to choose that, to achieve that besides take a dose of something? Right, right. I even tease that a little bit, like meditating can can instantly bring anxiety down, you know, even faster than Ativan. And, you know, he was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) That's when I said, are you sure? Do you believe me? Or am I just full of crap? He's like, no, no, I, I believe you. Just testing. So he wasn't just nodding in agreement with the therapist. Right. right? But is, is it something he would actually do? Right now? No, I don't think so. That's why I just teased it. I wasn't going to give him that tool. And we talked about, okay, you've got tools. You've got weed in your right front pocket, you know, lorazepam in your left front pocket. What's in your back pocket? And it's just opening that up to him. I, I'm not going to force that on him right now or introduce that because I think it might be overwhelming for him. Absolutely. And that's you know something I picked up from one of your sessions a few times ago. He was talking about how he was disappointed in himself for not cutting down on his stress. Right. And then you pointed out the irony of talking about it for two years and not doing much about it, which I thought was something you were able to say to him because you've got such a good rapport with him. Right. But I was looking for a response from the parents in all this. Absolutely. I think you're right. The irony thing that (laughs) what I found so ironic and what he got was that he was down on himself for not doing enough to bring his stress down. right? Right. I should be doing more to be able to do less. And he gets that. And that's, again, why that idea of fishing, the idea of an easier life. He talks about that sometimes. And yet here he is taking out a van and instantly can calm down or smoking weed and fairly instantly calming down. And that's what he wants. Yet he doesn't because that's going to be just like mom. So he wants more tools and we're getting there. And it was for me, like when you say, oh, wow, everything you do has some, some clinical framework to it. This is motivational interviewing. It's not directly like that. It's pointing out the incongruence with where he is and where he wants to be and letting him see, I want to do something differently. Mm. Showing, oh, you want to have less stress. Oh, you want more tools. Oh, oh, and you've got an Ativan in your pocket. Oh, and, and you smoke weed. Huh. So he can come to me and say, yeah, I'd like another tool. I'd like to try something different. But at the heart of this, for me, wasn't even that. It was, I don't want to be my parents. I don't want to be my mom. And what you're kind of teasing, Ma, is, of course, who would want to be like their mother? 
I think what what you're okay touche on that one. But what you're actually what you're actually teasing is he's getting an appreciation for mom for what it's like, and it's it's leading him to the compassion for that. But also, right and little Drew didn't get the mom that was around. I got the mom that was numbing out, that was taking her version of an Ativan. So he's still motherless in that sense. Right. And personally, I just think that that plays a lot more into his anxiety than he's been able to articulate so far. Mm. I mean, that it remains to be seen. But I think when, you, when you're dealing with the unmet needs of, of the child that we are, it's really important to see if you can get to some of that. Because when he was talking about the Polaroid of what his parents looked like, Right. He said 90% disappointing. Sounds like clinical, adult, rational, descriptive word to me. I mean, you were talking to him about it being disappointing. Right. And I was thinking like, okay, Doug, disappointing is a very adult, very sanitized word. It's very rational. It's very accurate. But it's also sidestepping the emotional component of other words like it. Hmm. Like what? Well, I was thinking that he might feel abandoned. He might feel let down. He might feel betrayed. Right. He might feel really scared because he was like alone. Yeah. When a parent refuses to be present, that's as scary as when a parent withdraws from you. Oh, yeah. So when you really need to have access to a parent and you can't get it, that's terrifying. Yeah. And that's really the essence of trauma in, in a lot of ways is that you wind up so afraid that you get disconnected from yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's kind of what I was trying to get out of him to see if he would go there. And using the 90% disappointment, I wasn't focusing on the, the disappointment word. I was focusing on the percentage shift Oh, because one of the things he loves is when we talk about being okay with somebody having 10% disappointment in you or you holding 10% disappointment for someone else. It's not everything all encompassing and taking over. It's just going, yeah, that person can be disappointed in me 10% and the 90% is going to be fine. So for him to flip it and go 90% disappointment, just to look at it that way and go, oh, right. It's not okay because it's so far skewed the other way. Well, then that's huge for him to say that. Yeah, absolutely. Really huge. Absolutely. And it's something that I loved in this session because he's getting to that idea of, wow, the, the mom that I wanted isn't there. He even says something really telling kind of earlier in the session where he said, I almost feel like I'm lying about this, having a heart attack or what's going on or, or, or what's happening. And it's like, what do you mean I'm lying about it? And he said, well, I was looking for reassurance from my parents in a big way and I didn't get it the way I wanted it. They, they showed up financially and, and they can help me see a doctor, get me on, on Cobra and, and, and the insurance, but they weren't validating my emotional experience. It's very true. I mean, when he mentioned that his mom told him to take the Amex card to the hospital with him. Right. And and I'm I'm like thinking that's exactly not what he needs. Right. From his mother. Right. You know, at that moment. Right. 
what he wants to get from his mom in that moment was the support that he needs. And what we were kind of really leaning into was that support that he needs, he's getting it from other places. That constant disappointment, that 90% of wanting it to be mom, we've got to break that cycle. And we also have to acknowledge that there is an abandonment, a betrayal, a sadness, a loss, that he's not getting it from mom. Really, and that's going to be very hard to deal with because that's a lot to process. Yeah, and it sort of ties, well, it doesn't sort of, it definitely ties into how he was caretaking mom for much of our sessions, how he was so hypervigilant about her health, mm-hmm. about her relapsing. And would talk to dad, like, are you sure? Are you taking care of her? What's she doing? How's it going? He would text her every day just to get a response from her. So he's trying to take care of her and trying to nurture that and trying to build the relationship. In fact, I would say he's trying to be the mother to her that she is not to him. Very true. But I also think he's just plain out scared. I I think the little Drew in him is actually terrified because when you think about it, Mm. I mean, I have some experience in growing up in an alcoholic family. And when you think about a parent who's incapacitated because of a substance that they've taken, it's terrifying because they're not able to be there for you in any kind of way. Right. Right. So it leaves you more than abandoned. It leaves you vulnerable and and scared. Right. And when you are that vulnerable and scared, you don't want to go to a friend. You want to go to somebody that really intimately knows you and can hold you. I thought it was super, super cool that he called grandma. Yes, absolutely. And that, you know, he even said, my grandma in the middle of nowhere, Canada is taking time out of her day to check on me. Mm -hmm. That meant a lot. And he was like, yeah. And it was just like life talk. Like that, that's what we were doing. And that's, that's where he kind of said the snapshot that the Polaroid of parents isn't who I wanted it to be. And they're looking at the snapshot of me from four or five years ago. I'm growing, I'm different now, and I'm still not getting what I want or need from them. I mean, they're giving something he's, he's very, I think, appreciative of the support. And it's something that I don't know if you caught this mom, but in several sessions earlier, we would talk about safety net. Mm-hmm. And as he was working on individuation and becoming an adult and taking care of himself, I kept saying safety net. And he was like, no, no, no. I want to do it all myself. Like, right, but there's something called a safety net. It's the support is there if you need it. You're still walking the tightrope up there, but there's a net there that will catch you. And I think him rejecting that idea was him saying, I don't want to rely on it because it's not there. Yes, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. And it was, I don't know, shocking to me. And I I said this with Meredith too, that his mom wasn't more present for this and didn't like sound the alarms, even though Drew in this episode, in the session says she wanted to come down, but I've told her I was fine because that's her just, I don't know, being smothering and taking too much care of him, but not allowing him some agency and providing a safety net. It's her doing everything for him. Yeah. I I think it's a tough balance to achieve because when mothers as children didn't get their needs met properly, Hmm. then they're at a deficit for how they're going to meet the needs of their children. 
I mean, they can learn, obviously. Sure. But but sometimes they just fall back on their emptiness. And it's his mother keeps, you know, when he when he said he calls and she's or she calls and she's just drunk. Loaded, yeah. And she can't function. Right. I don't think anybody who who uses like that knows how terrifying that is to the other people in their lives. Yeah. I mean, by nature of it, you're numbed out. So you're not aware. Right. I think what he was getting at here was, oh, I understand that that's what she does for her. That's her story. Another analogy that we use is she's the lead actor in her movie. Okay. That's her movie. I don't have to be in her movie. I need to be in mine. And he's recognizing with compassion, that's what she does for her. Okay, that's not what I need in my movie. I needed a supporting cast here. And I found it other places. And it's incredibly disappointing. Again, my word, that's not the emotional word necessarily. It goes from 10% disappointment to 90%. And that's a mountain. Yes. Right? It's huge. Yeah. And even in it too, in this session, it was... I think really cool and really telling that he also realized I don't want to be dad either. Dad was working all the time. And that's the other thing I do. I will just start working. I will just do that. I won't be available. I won't be accessible. I don't want to do that. I don't want that to be me. It was really interesting that, that he was, I think, straight up recognizing yeah. I needed them to be there for me and they weren't there. And then I just kind of started thinking about death and thinking about being alone in the world. And I threw that at him directly. That was you taking a nice risk with that as well, because he needed to face that. Right. It's something that he's had signs earlier of being very codependent in relationships with girlfriends and with parents, very enmeshed. And for him to realize, oh, my need's not getting met. I, I am alone in the world oh, that's scary. That's big. And it's not like running to your girlfriend and running to the end. Then he brings back little Drew in this. He brings back little Drew and starts talking about feeling like that small little Drew. And it's probably safer with an Ativan. It's safer with weed. It's safer under the covers, which he says. That I think is him understanding, oh, right. That's how mom feels too. You think so? Maybe. I mean, if he needs to understand mom, but <laughs> hey, mom, what's behind that question? You think so? What do you think? Tell me. Well, I'm wondering if if what he needs is to understand mom or whether he really needs to understand himself and to mm. have more of an insistence that mom understand him. I, I think that he he maybe needs to require her to understand him at a point in time when he has the courage to accept the fact that she might not do it. Right. Then I can use your word disappointment. She might disappoint him big time in that way. Right. By not being able to be there for him. Right. And then he does he does shift as I'm talking about this about feeling alone and and what that's like and and he he does kind of come to yeah I am growing I am changing I mean I think we're we're breaking the reliance and the codependence on mom and I only say that to you because you're my mom but also 
pointing out that he can understand what mom's going through so he doesn't have to blame her make her the scapegoat make her the target Mm -hmm. the focus isn't her it's him like you're saying so yeah we can understand your mom's going through that too what is that that she's going through what is that that you're Mm -hmm. going through it might be easier for him to see it when it's not that crippling fear that he gets sometimes of that death anxiety. He's even said to me, he's used the term, didn't know before he met me, existential anxiety, Mm. right? So he recognizes that that's happening for him. And that really is like, you are alone in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's not running to the arms of, of your mommy, of your girlfriend. It's just you. And I think it's, it's very important that he's got his faith as well. Mm. Because in the absence of of a mothering mother at this point, the fact that he can find something in church that helps him. Yeah. I mean, it's all these things that help him. And I think he's so hard on himself. When I was saying all all the cliches about the only thing holding you back is you and and we just need to get out of our own way. It's, It's something where for him, it was easier to just take the Ativan, to just smoke a bowl and numb out. Again, like his mom, but we're also talking about him. It's easier to do that than to face feeling alone and feeling scared and, and being that way. And that's, he hits that. You know, when we say that, he did say, yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. I'm fucking scared. I think that's why it's so important that he has you because you mm. are you are really a good voice of reason and you're there for him in the most supportive way possible and at the same time you grant him his independence and his ability to grow and individuate so you're not trying to keep him as a child you're not becoming parenting to him over parenting to him right it's a very nice balance that you strike yeah well he pays me for it uh, well, there's that. <laughs> but yeah, and there's the humor. But seriously, yes. And that's a lot of what therapy can be and how it can be healing is we can be that relationship that you need for that time to build your own ego strength. Mm-hmm. And he's doing that. One of the coolest things, I don't know if you know this analogy well, because we brought up baseball. We're talking about like, right, you're doing this, you're not prepared for this. And then the peaks and valleys of life, and then you get thrown this curveball. And I said, yeah, you can hit a 90 mile an hour fastball, but not a curve, <laughs> right? And what was so cool, I'm, I'm going to get baseball technical here Go for a for second, because what's we he and I speak this language, which is awesome. And I said something about like, well, you can't hit a 90 mile an hour fastball right now. Your timing's not there. And he's like, yeah, I don't know. I could. And I was like, you asshole, you're not going to, you're not going to hit a line drive. Like, come on. And he's kind of going, well. I might foul it off, but at least I fouled it straight back. Exactly. Which in baseball terms, if you foul a ball straight back, it means you timed it correctly. You just missed it Mm -hmm. like spatially, Mm -hmm. right? But your timing is right on. So I love that he hit that. Yeah, because that shows his his way of esteeming himself. He really is owning his self-esteem right there. Right. Even he he laughs it off and just says, ah, I'm just giving you shit. I'm like, right, but that's awesome that you gave me shit that way. Absolutely. And I can tell you that when I hear the two of you laugh in a certain way, there's a certain openness and a full heartedness to the laugh that the two of you share sometimes. 
Yeah. That it's the most perfect rapport. It's just absolutely extraordinary to me that it's a very mm. healing moment. Yeah. Thank you, Mom. It's such a, a throwaway thing that is everything. Mm-hmm. And even though it's like, yeah, I'm just giving you shit. Yeah. And that's amazing. And here's what, because this is what you're saying. And it's in those moments, you're right, where it's not just the rapport, but it's feeling like, ah, somebody gets me. Exactly. And that's what's missing with him and his mom Hmm. is that that's what we want from, I think most of us want from any of our parents is that we want them to get us, you know. Absolutely. And again, with with the baseball analogy saying, yeah, you want to you want to stroke a double and go into second base and then look in the stands and see your people and they're not there. You know, you might get high fives in the dugout, but who's there? And he said, yeah. And then that was just it is my parents would be there with a bottle of Tito's. So I hit the double and I look up and they're freaking drunk or not there. Mm, I wondered what Tito's was. I didn't know what that was. It's, it's a brand of vodka. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things where you can have the teammates around you, which I think he's building early in our work. He said, there's no good people in LA. He's found good people. And you can have that and get the high fives in the dugout or have your people around, but that inherent need for parents to see me, mm-hmm. right? Is that's mm-hmm. the one that he wasn't getting. And that's, I'll go meta for a second, why I think it's so special for me to have you seeing me in the stands, listening to the podcast on it with me. It's, it's pretty remarkable. Wow, I never thought of it meaning that much to you. I was just thinking the other way of how much it means to me to hear you and all your colleagues, because you have really assembled a really, really fine group of friends around you, professional friends. Thank you. Thank you. I realize that me growing up, for me, I would focus on the times that you weren't there. And I remember talking about baseball. Here you go. You ready for this one? There was one, I think it might've been your birthday or maybe a mother's day, but it it was not my birthday. And I lined the dining room table with all the things that were important to me. And I I had my, my Dodgers baseball cards. I think it might've been a Red Sox hat, you know, something, whatever was just lined up was there on the table. And I wanted to share that with you when you came home and you were working two jobs and you came home late and I was already asleep. And I was so disappointed, partly that I couldn't stay awake, partly that you didn't come home early enough. And I held that. What I didn't realize until much later in life is that you were trying your best. You weren't showing up with a bottle of Tito's. You were doing everything you could to be there as much as you could for us. And it was incredibly special and noble and yet still disappointing, sure. right? And I, I felt that at times. I think we all do. Your parent or virtually anybody is not going to be there every time you want somebody there. I know. And I remember crying about that when I got home and I saw the table and I was like, oh my gosh, look what he did. And he's sound asleep now. And mm. it was like my precious little boy. And I just went all over it. It just makes me sad to this day to think that I wasn't there for you when you wanted me to be. Oh. Yeah. But you're here for me now, Ma. Well, yes. And you weren't then, and I gave you a bunch of shit for it. (laughs) But it's, it's also, and it has also shaped me 
in ways where I really appreciate when you're here. And I really appreciate that I had that experience so I can relate to my clients, even on that level. That's very, very true. Yeah. There's so many things that we haven't even hit that were in the, in the session. Things like talking about where are you going and who's going with you and knowing who you are so you can ask those two fundamental questions. Yes. And what's so cool about Drew is that I'll throw these things at him. Even if I say them in passing, even if I say them 27 times in 40 minutes, because I'm incredibly repetitive, he will hold them and think about them and come in a week, two weeks, two months, a year later. Right. And even me saying to him, like, wow, rewind two years ago, you wouldn't know how to do this. He's like, no, not at all. And even something like when he said something about starting in the middle and mm -hmm. talking to somebody there, like, wow, do you remember when you first came to me? Yeah. It's not that he's regurgitating the same verbiage that I use. It's that he understands the essence of it and he's yeah. embodying it. Absolutely. He gets the concept and he makes it his own. I mean, I've heard him do that with black, white, and plaid. Right. And I remember right. when you did the thing with him, when you see a red car on the street. Oh yeah. Red car, white car. Right. Yep. And none of that is lost on him. He's been just brilliant about keeping everything that comes up in a session and using it. Right. God, it's so cool to listen to. What a cool job we have, mom. Like, yeah. To be able to be with somebody during their journey and through the ride. I think it's the coolest thing. And when he says things to me, like, yeah, I was totally green bereting it this week. Like, yeah. Awesome. Cause he, we know what we mean and he's in it and he's doing it and he's still growing. And I don't know if you remember this, but I don't know, maybe, maybe a month or two in when whatever we were initially dealing with kind of subsided a little bit, it might not have been that soon, but a few months in, he just said, so I guess, are we done? Like, how does this work? Oh, right. right? I remember there was, it was a session. It's like, are we done with therapy now? Right. Right. And to go from that to him being like, I don't ever want to be done with therapy. Like, mm -hmm. this is great. I, I love doing this. I love flexing this muscle. It's sort of like he likes working out. So why would you stop going to a gym? Exactly. Exactly. But right. he can feel his own growth. And that's just so wonderful. Yeah. It's pretty remarkable because it's him doing the work. I will take credit for guiding him. Like I said, we had an earlier session or episode that we called Thank You Period, You're Welcome Period. Oh, like yeah. learning to say those things yeah. and own it. When clients say to me, man, thank you for, for you know, helping me along this. I used to say, well, you're doing all the work. Uh, no, I'm doing a ton of work. Good right? for you. Yeah. And I will say, you're welcome. I will also make sure they realize they're doing the work. Drew is somebody absolutely doing the work, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it makes our job easier, more fun, more engaging. I don't know. It, it's kind of what I live for. I think the passion and the purpose with which you approach your practice is something I find so extraordinary, and I'm so deeply mm. proud of it. I mean, I, this is going to sound like a, a hyperbole, but... <laughs> There's something noble about doing the practice the way you do it. It, mm. it just elevates it to the best of what human interaction can be about. It's funny because, I mean, you've seen me perform as a musician too right? yeah. and as an actor, right? Yeah. And now you're getting to see me, uh, I'll air quote, perform as a therapist. Yeah. It's similar and very different. 
we get so much out of it. And it's to me being yourself. Acting is one thing because you are becoming someone else. You bring yourself to the role for sure. Mm -hmm. Music to me, the way that I played, I was exposing myself all the time. Like I was very open. Even the album I just put out a few months ago, it, it was very open and honest. That's how I am. That's how I am in session with clients. I'm not going to be different. And I get that some therapists will perform, will be that clipboarder mm -hmm. like we were talking about. Yeah. They'll sit behind you. And that's forms of therapy that can work and can be great. It's not mine. Doesn't work for me. But authenticity has always been important to you, even when you were little. Really? Yeah. You, you really, I mean, of all the things that you did, I mean, even when you had 27 bandanas tied around your, <laughs> you were being Van Halen or whoever you were yep, being. Van at Halen, the, that's right. You know, at the time. You did it with an authenticity to there wasn't any there wasn't any artifice to it. It was like hmm. this is who I'm being right now. I got to try a lot of things out. And yeah. you, you nurtured that in yeah. me that I could wear a bunch of bandanas. I, I had dreadlocks. I shaved my head. I had long hair. You I, had seven holes in your ear. That's right. And, the, and that was just one ear. <laughs> no, no, I had four in one, three in the other. Come oh, on, Mom. okay. Yeah. Sorry. But you got the seven right. That was good. Yeah. And it, it really was, yeah, being authentic with what I was doing and having the freedom to do that where I wasn't judged. Maybe that's at the heart of what drew me into becoming a therapist. Not you being a therapist, but you as a parent, not judging me for trying things out and finding my own way and being my own person and being my safety net. Wow. Wow. I think I hear a compliment there. Yeah, I'll try to make it a little more backhanded though. So, <laughs> I mean, look, I, I also remember a show that I was playing once in LA and right before I was going on stage, I saw you, oh yeah, your, your hand over your head. Sorry, Ma, this one's coming out. I'm just in a state of shame already. Good, good. Feel it, feel it, embrace it. We can process it. No, we can't. You can process it with your own therapist. I'm going to get out of here. It, it was right before I went on stage. Literally walked to the bar to grab like a glass of water to bring on stage with me. And you, you saw me, you were there, you showed up like right on time, which is great. And the first thing you said was, wow, your hairline's really receding. I know. It's just, it's that kind of thing where you have no idea when you open your mouth that something like that is going to be what comes out of it. Uh-huh. It uh -huh. was just amazing. Yeah. Well, I turned out okay. Well, for a mother who didn't have a filter on every time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad you were unfiltered here. And this was this was a lot of fun, mom. I mean, it was I think insightful. It was really cool to do with you. I'm sure we'll listen to this episode when it comes out and you will call me and have a bunch to say about it. And I'm really happy with having you on here, having the insight. I don't know if people like it, maybe we'll do it again. We'll find out. <laughs> We will indeed. So you guys out there, this was a Drew episode. If you are currently on the Patreon, awesome. Keep supporting us. These will keep coming out on the regular podcast. Know that Drew still exists on the Patreon. So if you want more sessions with him, jump on over to patreon.com, search for your mental breakdown, subscribe, support us, help my mom out with a new house. She <laughs> deserves it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we will, uh, I will, maybe you will talk at you again soon. 
Sounds good. I would love to. Yeah. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Period. Uh-huh. Bye. Bye. Bye.